Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Charles Cook, author of the new book, The Conservatarian Manifesto, Libertarians, Conservatives, and the Fight for the Right's Future. Charles is an exceptional editorialist for National Review and co-host of the Mad Dogs and English- Englishmen podcast with another one of our favorite writers, Kevin Williamson. Thanks so much for joining us today, Charles. Thank you for having me. Let's begin by defining terms. What is the conservatarian philosophy? Well, the idea of a conservatarian is one that's been bustling around for a while on the right. Uh, In a sense, it is the product of an attempt to uh, put out there what one is not. In other words, after the end of the Bush administration, conservatives who had been comfortable for a while calling themselves conservatives or Republicans felt uneasy with the term. They were dissatisfied with the eight years of the Bush administration and what the Republican Party had done with it. They were falling out of love with traditional conservatism, specifically on the questions of gay marriage and, to a lesser extent, marijuana. But they weren't libertarians, certainly not doctrinaire libertarians, and they tended to disagree with that philosophy on immigration and on foreign policy and and often on abortion as well. And so you started to hear more and more people saying, well, when I'm around conservatives, I'm a libertarian, and when I'm around libertarians, I'm a conservative. And they came up with a number of words to describe themselves. But the one that I thought was the most euphonious, and I think the most commonly used, was conservatarian. And so this book is a look at what led the right to the point at which people didn't want to be called straight-up conservatives, who those who were calling themselves conservatarians are, and then it's an attempt to look at where they should come down, where they do come down on issues, and how the right can stay united despite these differences. Early on in your book, you do a bit of a post-mortem on the 2012 presidential election, and you come up with a series of findings that relate to your views on conservatarianism and where you think conservatives and libertarians should be going with our movement. What were your key findings, and how do they relate to your core thesis about conservatarianism? Well, the first thing to say is that although it's done well in policy terms, and by well I mean it's got its own way, progressivism has not realigned the country, either politically or ideologically, in quite the way that we were told it was going to. Now, this is uh, something the Washington Press Corps tends to do. It did it in 2004 when George W. Bush won the other way around. But in 2012, you will remember the freakout after Obama's re-election. This was it for the right. It was it for conservatism. Uh, There were a series of books called The End of Conservatism. Conservatives can never win again. This is the new coalition, we were told. Not just electorally, but intellectually too. And that hasn't happened. In the 2012 election, uh, conservatives, or the Republican Party, Mitt Romney, whichever way you want to look at it, lost quite badly. But they didn't lose ideologically. If you look at the exit polling, there is a disconnect between who won and who was agreed with. Now, Mitt Romney's main problem, it seems, 
was that people simply didn't believe he cared. They didn't believe he was like them or would look out for them. But on foreign policy, on economics, on healthcare, on almost every question, he uh, gained a majority of Americans in support. But it's odd, but it's also encouraging. When you combine that fact with trends within the Republican Party and on the right, there's a generational gap, for example, on the question of gay marriage. There's a generational gap on the question of marijuana and the war on drugs more broadly. When you combine these two things, you come to the conclusion that the United States is not necessarily trending to the left, but that conservatism as it has been presented is not a winner anymore. And so this book is in part a manifesto in which I suggest how things should be and try to change minds, but is also a reaction to changes that are happening, but not quite in the way that it's usually reported. To play devil's advocate on whether the country is becoming more progressive or more conservative or libertarian, however we want to define it, the opposite of progressive, the economy in 2012 was, I think, in broad terms, worse generally, unless you were someone who was in one of the sort of protected elitist classes, which progressivism has actually paid off. Yet, in spite of the fact that progressivism is a materialist philosophy and you would think materialists would be upset, progressives won, in effect, by Barack Obama winning in 2012. So how do you explain that people felt worse off yet still voted for President Obama again? Was it purely a matter of, as you said, the perception that Mitt Romney doesn't care, or do you think it did evince something more broad about the American political ideology? I think that there is a lot of the former here. The problem with Mitt Romney was that he was running uh, in a year in which the general feeling toward rich good-looking, multi-millionaire business people, especially those who had worked in, uh, in finance, was, was low. The goodwill was low. And so he was a poor candidate in that regard. I don't think he was a poor candidate per se, that he wouldn't, but in that regard. And I think that made a big difference. But it's also other questions. I mean, you, you have these, these fault lines uh, gay marriage is one of them. Uh, Obama came out in favor of it. That may act as shibboleths for young people. Uh, it's not to say that young people are necessarily on board with Barack Obama's ideology. Indeed, young people are not, for example, particularly uh, happy with Obamacare. But polling does suggest that they do not listen to Republicans if those Republicans are against gay marriage. Uh, Republicans, of course, have a challenge because many older Americans are staunchly against gay marriage and would vote in the opposite way. But I think when you combine the two factors that I was discussing, when you when you combine uh, a, a an electorate that was not necessarily on board with everything Barack Obama believed but did not want to vote for his opponent, and these subtle changes in, in generational politics, then you can see where conservatism needs to go. And... And, and I'd like to delve into each of the individual aspects where you think that 
if conservatives and libertarians make a course change and come together, we can present an effective argument, basically a pro-freedom agenda, which everyone should ultimately get behind, or at least a majority of the populace should get behind. But before getting there, let's talk about where we end up if we don't course correct. You cite a statistic showing the dramatic flip in the percentage of the of GDP that goes to welfare versus defense spending and how this is this has flipped over time. Initially, defense took up a much higher proportion of the percentage of GDP than welfare. Today, it's flipping, and those numbers will probably only get more drastic and dramatic in the coming years. What are the implications of that flip in national spending? Well, the majority of American federal spending is on... I think welfare is sometimes the wrong word, although Social Security and Medicare are, are clearly not insurance programs. That is, a, is an old lie. Welfare, we tend to use to refer to other uh, palliative outlays. So let's say entitlements. But, oh, yeah, and so over time, you've seen, you've seen a, a change in uh, American uh, spending patterns. Now, that's not all bad. Uh, clearly, the, the population is aging. Clearly, the need to spend as much as we were during the Cold War on the military uh, has gone. But there is a big difference between acknowledging that Medicare and Social Security are popular and to some extent necessary, although I would like to see them reformed, and acknowledging that we have a chart that is going up and up and up into the future, and that whatever we do with taxes, there is no way we can pay for it. Now, there was a period uh, in the early 2000s when, although the parties disagreed as to how we might do it, they did agree that these, uh, these problems needed fixing. That agreement seems to have gone away. During the Obama administration, we now appear to have a Democratic Party that believes it is acceptable to spend money that we don't have forever, not in an emergency, but as a matter of choice. Now, I'm not suggesting that to uh, fail to, uh, to amend our course would be to become a socialist nation. I'm suggesting that it would lead to ruin. Uh, we cannot keep spending, and ultimately, Americans know that. So if Republicans want to get smart, and this is tough because many of those benefits flow to their voters, older people, uh, they're going to have to alert young people to the challenge and to get them on board, because it's not the Republican base, the older Republican base, that is going to suffer if we don't fix this problem. Uh, it's people who are my age and your age. Let's transition to some of the specific items that you examine in your book, beginning with education, which really, if there was a wedge issue, should be the wedge issue where there is sort of a chink in the progressive armor. And you've even seen some leftists come out against teachers' unions in select exceptional circumstances. You talk about how Jefferson viewed education. And we all know that 
Jefferson spoke about the value to a public education. You need an informed populace, etc. Although I don't think he could have imagined that our public institutions would necessarily morph into the community organizing mechanisms that they are today. But you actually delved into Jefferson's writings, and I think you found a very interesting substance in terms of the checks and balances that he, that he hoped would be built into a public education system and how he saw it. Explain Jefferson's philosophy on education. Right. Well, I compare Jefferson to the German model or the Bismarckian model. And the reason I do that is that it's all very well for us to say that we want a public education system. I do as well. But we have to ask subsequently, what do we want it to look like? Now, for most of Anglo-American history, until the mid-19th century, education was a local question. Jefferson thought that that was fine, but that it needed to be spread around the country and that it was acceptable to tax people in order to justify and support an educational system. But the spreading it around the country did not imply centralizing it. Whereas in Europe and in Germany, uh, which is where America gets its model, now it did. Unfortunately, we went eventually with the Bismarckian model and not the Jeffersonian model, which is to say that we instituted mandatory attendance, grades, um, uh, centralized funding, centralized curricula, and so on and so forth. Jefferson pointed out that the best way of keeping education honest and responsive was to permit those who were involved in it and those who were benefiting from it to control it. So parents, teachers, students, local communities, not bureaucrats in a far distant city. If we are to have a reform in education in the United States. It should be along the Jeffersonian model and not along the Bismarckian model. Unfortunately, we seem to be going in the wrong direction. When Republicans had full control of Congress in the early 2000s, they passed No Child Left Behind. Uh, We have Republicans who are in favor of Common Core, which is not itself a federal program, but it's been transformed into one by funding pressures. The Obama administration, I think, has attached a $4.7 billion bribe to Common Core, effectively saying to the states, well, you can choose whether you adopt it or not, but if you don't, we're not giving you the cash. This is the wrong direction, especially in a country that is not anymore reliant upon industry. Uh, There is an argument, I disagree with it, but there is an argument in favor of the German model, and that is that all we need is people who have basic literacy skills and can work in a factory. Now, I think for a free country, that's a hideous way of looking at people. And I track the difference, as I say, between Jefferson and Bismarck. But we don't live in that country anymore anyway. So uh, when it comes to a split here between left and right, when it comes to a split between those who are in favor of local control, state control, and those who wish to centralize our politics to Washington, there could be no more divisive issue than education, in no small part because pretty much everyone in the country either goes to a school or has children who do. And another issue which where I don't think there has been any split in the left yet, although, as you argue, the science may ultimately push people this way, is on abortion. 
Talk a little bit about the conservatarian view of abortion. And also, will you delve a little bit into the Ariel Castro case in Ohio? Because I thought that was a fascinating example that you brought up of the inconsistency in our laws regarding abortion versus murder. Sure. The abortion chapter is part of a broader social issues section in the book. And my essential point is that we lump all of these so-called social issues together when in reality they aren't, uh, they aren't similar at all. If you look at the question of gay marriage, for example, the root question there is which of civil society's institutions will the state recognize and in what form? The root question on another so-called social issue, drug, is to what extent does the state want to interpose itself in the marketplace? Does it want to stop you growing a particular substance, taking it, possessing it, selling it, and so on and so forth? The root question when it comes to abortion is at what point does human life begin and which protections should that life uh, receive? Now, unlike both gay marriage and marijuana, young people are not trending toward the so-called socially liberal position. In fact, they are more pro-life now than they were 20, 30 years ago, and they are the most pro-life generation of all, except very old people. So you have a a philosophical question here and an electoral question. And uh, in both cases, abortion sits apart. Now, uh, to, to, to your point about technology, one of the reasons for that is I think that it is becoming increasingly difficult uh, for the pro-choice lobby to pretend uh, that we are not talking about your life in in some way. Uh, It's not just 3D ultrasounds or that babies are born earlier and live or photographs of little hands uh, poking out of uh, pregnant women's uh, tummies. Um, But it is the knowledge... Uh, that uh, human beings um, are complex and that science is is simply incapable uh, of determining with any accuracy a point of viability, this this word that is thrown around. Uh, And I think that in evidence daily uh, in that pro-choicers very rarely want to talk about their position. They very rarely want to talk about abortion. They don't use the word. Uh, They say women's health or abortion care uh, or women's rights. Uh, it would be a little bit as if Second Amendment advocates such as myself were never willing to talk about guns or, or bullets or firearms and would shy away from the word. In terms of your Ariel Castro question, we do have an odd attitude toward abortion in the United States legally. Because of the Roe v. Wade decision, every state has a legal abortion regime. Now, um, the ease with which one can get an abortion uh, and the uh, time period during which it is legal to do so, practically, uh, differ by state. But every single state has a system in which it is presumed that an unborn child does not have the right to its life and can be killed. And yet, in many states, you can be tried for essentially a double murder if you kill a pregnant woman. Now, Ariel Castro would have been in in Ohio, he killed himself, but would have been liable to be charged for murder and executed 
because he forced one of his captors to miscarry. He punched her in the stomach, I believe, until she miscarried. In other words, the law was fine to punish him, possibly to the point of death, because he had killed an unborn child. That was a murder. That's, re- that's registered as a life within the law in Ohio. But elsewhere, if a mother doesn't want her child, she can kill it. I think that that's metaphysical nonsense. That's effectively saying that if you want a baby, it is a life, and if you don't, it is not. Well, what else works like that? Nothing. Moving from, and, and I think that's a that's a strong point that I haven't really heard articulated anywhere else, frankly. Have you? I haven't, no. I have to say, I, I, someone will probably write to me now and say, well, I've been saying this for years, so I don't want to claim <laughs> it as a, as a unique thought, but it was certainly original to me. So moving from one uncontroversial issue to another uncontroversial issue, the Civil <laughs> Rights Act. You make an argument with regard to private discrimination where, and to paraphrase, and you can correct me if I mischaracterize it, you argue that the Civil Rights Act in toto, when it was passed, made sense to protect those being discriminated against. But today, those aspects of the act which ban private discrimination should be struck down. Is that right? And, and make your case. No, I don't think they should be struck down. I think that we need to start re-examining whether we are going to permit those who have conscience objections from discriminating privately. Uh, let me make two, two points just to be extraordinarily clear here. The first point I make is that there is absolutely no role whatsoever for discrimination within the government uh, and that the federal government has a role to play here. Uh, there is... Uh, no room in America for a government, for example, charging uh, British writers a higher tax rate or refusing to give African-Americans driver's licenses or anything of that sort uh, when one is forced to come into contact with the state, where there is force involved, or where the state has a monopoly or is in charge of a permitting process. The Civil Rights Act is absolutely necessary and must not only be upheld, it must be cherished the question of private discrimination is, of course, different because one does not have to visit a particular diner. When we're thinking about uh, Mississippi uh, in 1964 and Mississippi in 2015, it's only reasonable to point out that, that the situation on the ground has changed. Uh, uh, for example, I would be fine with a restaurant having a no-iris sign in the window, but I would nonetheless boycott it and tweet about it. And... Uh, make a fuss. The reason I bring it up, though, is not because I have a particular desire to repeal that part of the Civil Rights Act, although I do think that it's uh, intellectually problematic to tell a business owner he has to serve somebody he dislikes, the private business owner, that is. But it's because we seem to be headed for a clash on the question of gay marriage. And uh, the New Mexico Supreme Court ordered uh, a, a photographer um, Elaine, her name was, to photograph a gay marriage to which she objected strenuously uh, on religious grounds. And now, the court case in question, the majority opinion suggested that it was the price of living in a free country to be forced to serve customers you believe are, in the words of Thomas Jefferson, sinful, 
uh, and tyrannical. Now, I don't agree with Elaine. I'm fine with gay marriage. I would happily photograph a gay wedding. Uh, but if we are to side with her, as 80% of the American public seem to do after the case, then we should also accept that that has implications for our view of uh, other private discrimination. Uh, and uh, I understand that it's a, it's a thorny area, but I am presenting the case that it might be time uh, to throw up our hands and say that just as we are not uh, greatly offended uh, if someone, legally that is, if somebody chooses to say hideous things about the Holocaust, we have uh, strong First Amendment protections for terrible human beings. Uh, we may need to accommodate those who disagree with gay marriage so that they aren't forced to provide private services. It's one of the ways in which it will be possible to keep the union together and everybody happy. And of course, accepting differing opinions is free society. It's essential to free society. And you've argued right. vigorously, as you mentioned, you know, for folks who are Holocaust deniers for their, their right to speech. It's an inherently American thing to accept dissenting views. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, it's amazing to me, uh, as a foreigner, the extent to which those with dissenting and often ugly views are protected in the United States because they're not where I'm from. There are these lines that are drawn, and it is presumed that if you stand up and say that some terrible Holocaust denier should be able to speak without being arrested, that you agree with him. Well, of course, I don't agree with him. I don't agree with any of the people I've defended uh, on these legal grounds in the last few years. I think they're generally awful. But I don't agree with Elaine either. And that isn't to say I should be able to force her at the point of a bayonet to serve people she dislikes. Since you mentioned gay marriage, uh, you go into some depth to make the argument against those libertarians, let's say, who would argue that the state should completely separate itself from marriage altogether. You make the case that they're sort of uh, intertwined to such a degree that, that that can't practically happen. Explain that to our listeners. I think it's a linguistic game, and I think it puts the cart before the horse. Look, there are two reasons that gays want to be able to marry and have the state recognize their union. The first is that it carries with it a certain imprimatur. That's clear from Kennedy's decision. It's clear from the amicus briefs that accompanied the case. There is a sense that there is a certain societal animus, is the word, or disapproval inherent to the states recognizing only straight marriages. But the key reason, the main reason that marriages uh, are being changed is that the state is involved in so much that we do, and marriage is involved with that. For example, I'm an immigrant. Now, I got my green card through my employer, but I could have bought it through my wife. And if I had been marrying not a woman, but a man, I would have, until the DOMA decision, been unable to come in because I was marrying an American. It wouldn't have been accepted as a marriage. Uh, equally, we have the old cliches, hospital visitation rights and inheritance uh, and so forth. 
Now, I understand the instinct to look at our current argument and to try and get out of it completely. In other words, to replace marriage with a series of private contracts. That actually is not quite as easy as it looks for a number of arcane legal reasons. But presume, for the sake of argument, that it were, we'd still have the same problem. Unless the state shrinks to the extent that there are no immigration restrictions, uh, that there are no taxes, uh, that there are no uh, contract uh, intrusions, inheritance, for example, the question of which private contracts between individuals the state would be willing to recognize is still going to be there. We can not call it marriage if we like. We can call it any other word or a, a private arrangement between individuals. But the outrage that would be felt by those who are excluded will be just as keen. I mean, for example, my immigration. Suppose that I had a private contract uh, with my wife. That was how we did it now. The state would recognize that, I presume. Suppose I had a private contract with you. The state would now recognize that, I presume. But suppose I had a private contract with an 11-year-old girl. Would the state recognize it? No, why not? Suppose I had a private contract with two people. Would the state recognize it? If I wanted to enter into a private marriage-style contract with you and then move to the United States and the government wouldn't let me, wouldn't I just throw up my hands immediately and say this is homophobia? That I need the government to recognize this arrangement. All we're doing here is changing the word. So although I understand where Rand Paul is coming from, although I understand where libertarians are coming from on this, I don't think they understand why it is uh, that that gays want uh, the redefinition of marriage. And of course, you also make the argument in the book that though you have your own personal views, you respect and believe that the views of more traditional conservatives should be respected who believe that marriage is defined as it's traditionally been defined and that, by the way, we've had hundreds of years of human experience which this new institution flies in the face of. Yes, and I think this is not just a, a point of what I think. It's a point of how we should all treat this radical and very fast change within our society. I am fine with it, as I say. Uh, but it is worth remembering that people who are now called bigots hold the same position as Barack Obama did until two years ago. They hold the same position that Hillary Clinton did until last year. This is a an extremely speedy change, and we are unfortunately in the process. As marriage redefinition has become popular, just maybe 51%, we are now in the process of moving the argument from should gay marriage exist to should anybody who opposes it be received in polite society? And we looked at Brendan Ike, who essentially built Mozilla, being kicked out of his own company because in 2008 he had contributed money to California's Proposition 8. And one, of course, he was in line with Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and most people in California by the looks of it. And he was kicked out for it. He was prevented from serving within his own company uh, because he held a private view, not because he was bullying his staff, 
not because he was uh, making people feel uncomfortable or discriminating or sending around proselytizing emails, but because privately he had contributed to a campaign in 2008. Five years later, six years later, he's ousted from his job for thought crime. That's extraordinarily dangerous. And that is a fight that conservatives really should be turning their attentions to because the gay marriage fight, I think, is over. I don't just think it's over in terms of public opinion, but I think the Supreme Court is going to find a constitutional right to gay marriage, which I should say, although I support gay marriage, I I think is weak. On foreign policy, you discuss some of the lessons from World War II and you ask the rhetorical question, have we learned nothing? Uh, I think the answer to that question, based upon the news of almost every single day, is self-evidently no. What do you make of that response? Oh, I hope you're wrong. Uh, I should put that into context. My basic theory here is that the conservatives are right on the question of foreign policy and that the libertarians are wrong. Uh, It's all very well to have a non-interventionist outlook, admirable even, but we live in a different world than we did in 1880. For most of its history, the United States has had a streak of non-interventionism. Barack Obama, and indeed those who supported him, was not new. We saw this after Vietnam, we saw this after World War I, and there was a resurgence after Iraq. But it is one thing, hoping to stay neutral in 1918, at the end of the First World War, when the British Empire is keeping the peace, is ruling the waves, is underpinning a system of liberal uh, internationalism, It's another thing in 2015. Uh, The reality is, and whether American, uh, and America likes it or not, that in 1945, the British Empire could no longer play the role that it had done since Waterloo. It could no longer support free trade, keep the oceans free of pirates, and uh, maintain what Samuel Huntington refers to as the liberal order, And that baton was handed over to the United States almost overnight. And as I say in the book, someone is going to fill that role. Now, we've been lucky that for the last 200 years, literally 200 years since 1815, it's been an English-speaking, well-intentioned power. First the British Empire, and now America. But it doesn't have to be. That role will be filled by somebody. And... When the hegemon is weak, others step in. We saw this uh, in the 1930s. Britain backed away. Uh, We saw this um, prior to the British uh, victory in France in in, uh, 1815. And we will see it again. So who do you want in that role? My answer is the United States. There is no other country, I think, that could credibly fill it. At the moment, we are not seeing a United States that has backed off completely. Indeed, American defense spending and military power is such that it would take quite a while for another nation to step in to that void. But other nations can cause a great deal of mischief if America chooses not to lead. 
and increasingly under Barack Obama, and you can see this in terms of public opinion, which is shifting from a more non-interventionist stance, and not just on the left, it should be said, on the right as well, uh, 2008 and beyond, to a more interventionist attitude. This morning, I read that 62% of Americans want ground troops sent against ISIS. And 30% do not. That's a shift. Whether it happens or not, that's a shift. Have we learned? No, I think these lessons have to be relearned every generation. I think that it is tempting and understandable for people to look around, especially with high unemployment and a general sense of malaise, and to wonder why, with federal deficits and debt spiraling out of control, we're spending so much money on a military that is rarely used to its capacity, rather than paying down the debt or spending it at home. The answer, though, is that history shows us that a strong liberal power undergirds a peaceful world order. Marco Rubio has a good line about this. He says, if you think uh, that the military is expensive, try and imagine a world in which it's not there. He's absolutely right. So some of us understand this. Some of us do not. And it is the job of those of us who do to make sure that that lesson does not need to be learned again at the expense of tens of millions of lives. And of course, one of the things that I think is missed when we talk about military spending generally is that it isn't just the capability of the military, but it's the civilian politicians largely who dictate a lot of what the military does. And I think that's often missed when we talk about the size of the armed forces, whether or not there's wasteful spending. Of course, there's wasteful spending just like in every single branch of government. But it also matters who is the one determining where resources are deployed. That's true. On the, on the spending point, I would say, and I touch on this in the book as well, conservatives can shoot themselves in the feet by being indifferent toward waste when it is in the military. And this parallel the criticism I have of the right on the question of drugs. Why is it, for example, that conservatives uh, who are genuinely excellent at recognizing a bad program, a program that hasn't worked, do not apply the same uh, scrutiny to the war on drugs? The budget games and waste that we see within the Defense Department is a disgrace. And if we saw it in any other federal department, uh, there would be health pay. Uh, if conservatives wish to make the case that this military is necessary, and I think it is, that this amount of spending is necessary, and I think it is, and then they should be seen to be as hard as anybody on their own priorities, and they're not. And in a sense, that permits in the notion that this is not only an out-of-control boondoggle, uh, but that those who are uh, benefiting from it, don't care. Charles, you've been very generous with your time, so I will just end with two very quick questions, and I'll ask that you fill in the blank to finish two sentences for me. And I'll caveat oh. this by saying uh, libertarians obviously differ greatly on a, on a variety of issues. Conservatives are a little bit more unified in their views, so I'll ask you to use the caricature of a libertarian and the caricature of a conservative when answering these. 
The first sentence, libertarians should become more conservative about what? Immigration, foreign policy, abortion. And conservatives should become more libertarian about what? Gay marriage, the drug war, and the importance of federalism. The name of the book is The Conservatarian Manifesto, Libertarians, Conservatives, and the Fight for the Rights Future. And the author, who we've been speaking with, is Charles Cook. Charles, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for your time. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks, and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.